Hey, this is Higher Peaks. This podcast is supported by our listeners on Patreon. There you can become a patron with options of bonus content, including behind-the-scenes posts, messages, pics, shorts, raw, unedited content, and even full episodes. You can influence future shows, have voting power, get exclusive rewards, and have patron-only giveaways. See full details on our page at patreon.com slash organrooted. Enjoy the show. People often ask me, um, Matt, do bugs feel pain? <laughs> and um, to be honest, it's kind of a philosophical question. The way that I look at it is that there are organisms in nature that if they didn't affect things that competed with them, uh, then they would also die and perish. So it's kind of an unfortunate reality of living in, on Earth. Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. Welcome to the Dirt Show. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. All right. We are mid-swing harvest 2020. Here it is. Croptober. <laughs> well, yeah, we knew I that. fucking Croptober. But. but like we got all the plants torn down. Finally. One at mm-hmm. a time. Officially today. And uh, yeah, the very last one today. You and were harvesting here while I was harvesting at work. At work. <laughs> it's all around us. It is fucking everywhere uh, yeah and actually that we'll give a shout out to those plants in a second but yeah we got them all torn down and um and now we're doing the this is the hardest part of the process for me the, trimming yeah the trimming and the allowing it to get too trim so allowing it to uh oh dryer cure or what try dry and cure yeah, I was having a brain fart. Yeah, it takes time. And every time you try it, you're like, ah, oh, well, it tastes a little better. And then you keep waiting, but <laughs> wait another day or two. Okay, a little better. I've seen people argue about like how long do you cure? And a lot of people nowadays are like, two weeks. Cause it used to be a month all the time, right? Standard. And now everybody's like, two weeks. And I think that uh, you know, the commercial guys, a lot of those guys are doing freeze dried. And <laughs> You know, it works great. Uh, there's a different consistency, but like some of the big guys, you know, do use it and uh, they do a 24 hour cure. So basically, there's no cure when you freeze dry it. Yeah. But it's good enough for high end shelf. They're still getting top dollar for it. You'd be surprised the companies that do it. But um, that would be cool. I'd like to try it at home, but like those are like $4,000 freezers. We don't even have a regular fucking freezer. <laughs> so let's go ahead and get one of those regular razors first and then we'll talk about it no i just wanted to mention that though i don't know that's fucking expensive if people realize that uh that these uh high and some high-end 
cannabis places use freeze dry. Anyway, so no cure to that. 24 hours and it's perfect. I wonder if they trim it all. How do they do that? I never asked about how they did on the trim. They probably trim it down as low, but why would they not be able to still trim it after they I'm freeze sure. dry? No, no, no. I'm just, it wasn't. Okay, dumb question. I'm like, they probably bucket off, freeze dry it, and then. Yes, and I do think that's also the popular method when they're making. I don't know. They might even hang it up. After that? No, I think it goes to bins. No, meaning I think that they cut it down, hang it up, freeze dry it, then bucket and trim it maybe. Oh, I don't know. I just know it gets to the freeze dryer at some point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but. <clears throat> From A to B. I think that also makes it quicker for making uh, water hash too. Mm -hmm. So, but we're, <laughs> we're doing it the old fashioned way. And it, it seems like to me when I taste our cannabis, it's like usually closer to a month that it starts to taste best. Mm -hmm. It's like more like three weeks, you know, because we're already down. We got our first two strains. They're like two weeks, two and a half weeks now. Still not where I want it to be. True. So I'm a big fan for the three to four weeks. We, you kidding me? We're on only the third strain trimming. Well, not counting the small. Yeah. The small ones. So technically the fifth strain if we get down to it. And it's weird. When I'm getting paid money for trimming, I don't mind. I'll do it every day like you. I don't mind it. But to my do my own that I'm... Finger hurts. To do my own is harder for some reason. I don't know why. It's because I'm not getting paid, I guess. But at the same time, I am getting paid because you save it on the back end, not buying that stuff. And you get, you know, all that. But it's power. like we should make our presentable stuff. And then we should make our stuff that we'll just smoke at home where we'll just like, oh, here, look, here's our stuff that we trimmed, hand trimmed to our friends. And then be like, <laughs> shove something else in the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, never really smoke the really 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 nice one that you trimmed real nice yeah yeah well and so <laughs> let's get to that the four strains i just wanted to shout out to uh bigfoot clones again mm -hmm. uh so obviously from oregon and hi guys much love yeah and I we haven't had a, <laughs> we is you know we've been four or five years now and we still hadn't had to try anything from them and we did man they came out great now i i will say this out of the four there was Chili Verde, mm -hmm. which tastes just like a damn chili. I, it's it's odd. sweet. It's spicy sweet. Yeah. <laughs> odd. I've, it, don't run into those terps very Almost often. Almost like mango chili is the best way to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like, like a, those Mexican chili covered mangoes. Yeah. No, I get it. Uh, mm. But odd to me because it's so spicy. Mm -hmm. Like usually spicy to me is peppery. This isn't really so peppery in, mm -mm. in that sense. It's just. Like a pepper, not it's like a sweet black pepper. pepper. Like <laughs> it, oh, it's weird. It's it's worth having in the stable. So I think we'd grow that. And, but the big thing was the mimosa. Mm -hmm. Damn, that's great. It took him till tonight to figure out why it's called the mimosa. <laughs> well, it's a guys. cross of what clementine and purple punch. Purple punch. Mm -hmm. so, so orange juice and champagne. Yeah, well, and it smells like that to me. Because usually you drink champagne more in the evening But I'm like time. tasting it before I even knew the crust. I'm like, that's a little bit of Tropicana. Or so we'll say Clementine now. Or tangy-ish. <laughs> or tangy you know, orange, sure. you know, that orange. Any term. of the oranges. <laughs> uh, but it just finally hit me tonight that, you know, Mimosa. Because I'm like, why would they call it Mimosa? Duh. So, While we were watching Shit's Creek. <laughs> we're getting more of that, though, for sure. Chili Verde, I'm down. But the Mimosa, 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 that shit was fire is fire but we only got like a, a little jar a little nally's jar of it oh, damn it's it like half full now. 
less than. Um, and then we got not so excited about the lemongrass. My only opinion here is I think that we probably didn't go long enough on that one. Yes, but also anything that I have smelled that has been lemongrass hasn't been too potent on the nose. Yeah. We haven't got to try it smoke-wise yet, but it's it smells all right, but we also didn't let it go, like I said, like you said, well, <laughs> um, as long as the other ones, such as you just pulled down the sweet skunk tonight. I'll tell you right now, this is going this is our IPM episode. I'm not going to tell you who's on yet. Well, you already know if you read the damn episode title. <laughs> yeah. But but here's the deal. I think that Keep uh, it in suspense. Don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I don't know. I'm being crazy. So IPM episode, uh, something that we haven't done a lot of. Uh, so I found someone who rocks. He is an IPM specialist. And uh, so we talk all kinds of things. Um, as far as how it relates to Argro, uh, we, you know, I told everybody we've been doing great week, 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 week. I missed two weeks. All of a sudden, Nathan's were like, Hey, how's it going? By what the way, are you doing? I did explain this. I think it was also the fires didn't help with that. No, but it was all the timing. Like I backed off for a couple of weeks and then yeah. boom, fires, which was probably why I backed off. I didn't want to go out there and be out in the smoke. I think it was a combination of both you not spraying and then the fires pushing them this way. There was, an easy haven for them to come home to sure or come to that's what i think it was a combination of both so and in that two week you know span uh it the the freaking aphids aphids really attacked those little ones and so the pressure was hard so had to pull them quick i think that two of them were fine the mimosa was fine the chili verde was marginal Mm -hmm. like it got the terps out but it could have been a little bulkier yeah uh, but we really for sure needed to let the lemongrass go to really find out about that because it really turned out like lemon, not lemongrassy, like grass, like, like long grassy. <laughs> <laughs> My fault. Like Nailed I said. the grass. Nailed the grass. <laughs> Nailed the grass. Neil the grass. So maybe it was your front lawn sprinkled with some lemon. Ah, uh, barely, barely. Not even lemon zest. It threw a lemon slice at it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. We did let one go by chance because it really resisted the pressure. And that was the sweet skunk. And I'm glad we did get to let it go because it in the last like four or five days, it's really changed. Mm. It went from smelling like regular skunk. Now it just smells like not roadkill. It smells like fresh death skunk to me. Mm. Like when I was cutting it, it smelled like you just freshly hit it. It's got that kind of sweeter skunk smell, but definitely some rubber tire in there. Mm, so like freshly hit. Oh, real fresh. Like even the tire is still like just it, freshly there peeled you go. off of it. Like you just got out from getting a brand new set of treads for your car and, and you, you hit a smack skunk. right into that bitch. So I'm excited for that because. Still can't forget that story about those skunks. Oh, yeah. You want to tell tell it real fast? I thought we already. We probably did. We can. I almost hit a family of skunks. (laughs) Yeah, we missed them all. (laughs) It's because I lifted my feet and took my hands off the wheel (laughs) and closed my eyes and said, ah. I'm really excited for that particular profile because it's kind of been lost Mm -hmm. because so many other things have come up Skittles and the GMOs and the garlic cookies, same thing. Uh, the <laughs> Tropicana's, you know, starting with the Tangy stuff like that, all that kind of overshadowed that old school skunk. I know it's coming back. People Don't are already searching for it. 
Donnie burgers. Oh, I love the for Don. sure. Pot roasts, the gassy pot roasts, like or, organ Arcus. Uh, so really excited for that one. Well done, guys. Thank you. We will be seeing you next year. I've always talked not down, but very not like supportive of cloning or clone, not cloning wrong, but clones in general, like bringing clones in. Yeah. Mostly because we've had bad experience. Well, and most people do. Yes. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, these guys are legit. Everything was ultra clean. There was not one bug on them. No, and they, they were grew beautiful. just great. Uh, in terms of we did get them there a little sensitive. Like I had to harden them off in the middle of July. Uh, when it was fucking the hottest in the backyard, I swear to God, it was magnified. <laughs> it's hard to harden off a plant from being indoors at 100 degrees. Yeah. So we did it. Took and our them. son was straight up on it. Yeah. So next year, we're going to get them on time, get them proper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's it. You know, we did have Organ Arcus. I want to shout out to him. Organ Arcus. I want to shout out to JB because he did have, we did cross his, mm-hmm. got some seeds that we just, I'm pulling. I actually should have cut today. I won't. I'll do it tomorrow. Going to just hang that bad boy upside down and just collect seeds. <laughs> uh, but we crossed the, the Ripstein. The, the Epstein cut. No, yeah. It's the Ripstein. Ripstein. Man, you keep changing it up on me. Well, because everybody's going to get offended by the Epstein, so we might as well call it the Ripstein. Now, it is the blissful wizard-leaning pheno, but Sarah thinks we should call it the Epstein cut because if anybody's seen... The documentary. The documentary, they explain what the Epstein penis looks like. And it was a joke. <laughs> Not on the show. I he think He was they were very real. offended. <laughs> no, meaning it was a big joke, meaning that it went to like, oh my God, people started making fun of him. Of Epstein? Uh, because of that and he just looked like an egg scoffed so the, the buds looked like the epstein penis i guess so it's the epstein cut they were short and fat <laughs> leaves which not indica leaves they were like claws. we've all seen indica leaves no these were some fucking funky ass leaves yes <laughs> anyways the, the best part is we crossed a male and a female that had the same traits i want to bring that out you know now that's calming down as it's caring it's starting to really smell like that pot roast smell yeah <laughs> So I don't know if I got, I don't think I changed the Terps much. I just think I haven't had those. I haven't grown those before. Yeah. So it smelled really weird to me when it was fresh. Yeah. I'll know what to look for now, but uh, I just, whatever. <laughs> Shout out to you, JB. This shit's fire. Hopefully we'll see. <laughs> I haven't smoked it yet. We will find out. Uh, okay. Let's move on. That was, that was a lot. All right. So the, <laughs> let's go to the news. <laughs> Uh, this is a big one that we just I have we have to bring this up first. Uh, I don't know if anybody's seen this. It says DEA seeks contractor capable of burning four tons of marijuana per day. <laughs> Fuck. The Drug Enforcement Administration recently reached out for help burning at least that's quote at least a thousand pounds of marijuana per hour for eight hours straight. <laughs> No comment. I'm oh wait, I gave you God. a window. I gave you a window. It says every You're year smoking it for sure. No, it's either all moldy. It's like the hemp growers. That's, throw it under a tarp. Gold. Hello. <laughs> throw it under a tarp. It says every year DEA seizes millions of marijuana plants and literal tons of raw cannabis, which eventually end up being destroyed. Ugh. 
The successful contractor in Arizona would be responsible for burning marijuana and other controlled substances seized as evidence in drug cases to a point where there are no detectable levels as measured by standard analytical methods of byproduct from the destruction process. Question. Do, do you think they burned the weed that was seized from where our studio used to be? I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> eventually it's going to end up somewhere burnt or some, I don't know. I hope they burnt it by now because I know they didn't give it back to them and that's old weed now. You would think that, well, it says, and it would be responsible for burning other controlled substances. You would think they already got this problem figured out or maybe they just ended up with the contract ended with someone else. Mm -hmm. Now they're looking for someone new. doesn't say, but it says the DEA shall inspect the incinerator to ensure no drug residue remains. Just coated with fucking RSO. <laughs> uh, wouldn't if you're burning that much weed, wouldn't it not leave resin? It would leave resin, not RSO. Ooh, I was joking. <laughs> but I'm well, okay, incinerator. So I'm sure it's very, very hot. But so it's it might still not. maybe not, but it just seems like You'd have to, I don't know, burning all that oil up. Oh, it seems like the clouds of smoke would be. <laughs> I'm sure that there are shit tons of clouds of smoke. Uh, okay. Hold on. The drugs are usually tightly compressed bricks or bales. So they're making the brown frown again. No, this it, is the stuff that hold, probably seeks from on. Mexico. It continues and are packaged in all sorts of materials, cardboard, wrapping paper, plastic wrap, aluminum foil packaging, duct tape and derivatives, plastic evidence bags, grease, oil, and others. Contractors will be expected to burn that stuff too. God, this sounds like no, poison. No, they are making, freaking the brown frown again to burn it. They're just like, okay, just push this up into a bale. <laughs> Throw it on in there. <laughs> Oh, here we go. To avoid potential contact highs, there must be proper ventilation and no smoke buildup will be allowed. Other mandates include closed circuit cameras that capture the entire process, which DEA reserves the right to access, as well as background checks and regular drug tests of all personnel. Just shoving your head to big ass furnace. Armed DEA <laughs> agents and contractors will be present during scheduled burns. The work is also Armed. very hush hush. So whoever gets the job shouldn't expect to regale friends with stories of the latest large scale federal weed burning session. <laughs> oh my we couldn't God. just stop there. This is this is too good. I know. The contractor and its personnel shall hold all information obtained under the DEA contract in the strictest confidence. The work, unless they get too high, the work description says all information obtained shall be used only for performing this contract and shall not be divulged nor move uh, made known in any manner except as necessary to perform this contract. Yeah, January 1st of next year. They expire in 2026. Unless terminated soon. <laughs> Getting high. <laughs> I like how their armed guards will be present. What are you going to do? I mean. Busting and steal that moldy weed. Or steal the duct tape. I, it sounds like some pretty bad stuff. It sounds like what they have us do when we have to waste out product. They want us to mix it with kitty litter or dirt. Right. They want us basically make it so it's not worth smoking. It makes it sound like that when they press it into the bricks they press it with all sorts of stuff that will also burn, mm -hmm. such as duct tape, all that shit that I listed, all that stuff they mix with it. So also it doesn't seem appeasing to the people who are burning it. Sure, sure. Yep. Bet you they have prisoners doing it. 
sounds like they should have freaking straight up Which hazard. Is why they have armed guards? They're like, bitch, put it in there. Don't smoke it. <laughs> Has, hazmat suits and uh, and respirators, if you ask me. Okay, so that gives you an idea how much fun they get to have out there. That'd be fun. <laughs> I want to go. Where's our ticket? Ah, uh, man. Well, I, I think actually, if anybody listens to Rogan, I think he's been talking about starting up some sort of ranch like that, where he's even gonna have like actual like. Wasn't he talking with Ron White saying he could make it a cult? Yeah, make it, <laughs> and you know, have people actually live out there. Yeah. you know, and I, I don't. I think he's serious. <laughs> I'd go move there. I don't think I'd move to Texas, but I'd move there. Certainly would be a place I would imagine. Just like Dave Chappelle here, he probably got the fucking. He's been talking to Dave Chappelle. I know they're he's fans of him, so I'm sure they talk. He's yeah. like, you need a ranch too, man. We'd never ever fucking have the money for that. But <laughs> <laughs> gotta be comedians. Sounds Dream like. Big. You have to be a comedian, but it sounds like they got the right idea. Have a weekend thing where you have mushroom tea and mushroom I could be food. A fucking and, comedian, I could get high enough and be a comedian. Mushroom food and and cannabis food. Mm. All right. So also John Legend, we know he actually endorsed uh, Measure One Ten for Oregon in one of his tweets, which is cool. Now, just so everybody knows, there's two different initiatives on the ballot, which we're voting tonight. We have to have it in the, not tonight. We're going to do it in the morning. I'm like, no, in the morning. I already tried that. <laughs> in the morning, we're voting, sending it out because we got two important ones. 109 is to legalize uh, use of psychedelic mushrooms yeah. in a clinical setting. All right. That's the first step. Vote. And then 110 is to uh, decriminalize uh, certain drug possessions minor drug offenses and switch over to treatment services mm -hmm. without raising taxes. Yes. So all it's doing is saying not, we're not going to screw well, up your life. Can't miss 108. What's 108? Taxes on tobacco. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> I'm all for that taxes. <laughs> oh, how odd that is. But I'm not know, a smoker. I'm not a smoker. So, and I know that secondhand of that could kill my kid a whole lot faster than secondhand of cannabis. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if I'm not alive from all those years of alcohol abuse just from cannabis. <sighs> I don't know. Anyway. And psychedelics. And <laughs> so, but John Legend on Friday had endorsed that. So thank you, John. We appreciate it. And happy Halloween, by the way, everybody. And oh, thank you. Thank you. Happy oh, Halloween. I fucked him up last weekend, you guys. I had him watch 31 while he was high on acid and two hits of acid. Yeah, which is something we're going to have to talk about in a future episode. I, you know, on two hits of acid, I had some a, a profound we'll, experience. We'll re, we'll re hit this subject i was some just, future I, but yes i do know up because it's almost halloween i gotta it say does it. yes and and so in halloween spirit we've been watching movies all you know every year we watch scary movies all the way through october and i'll tell you more like i torture him <laughs> well i'll tell you by the end of october i do start to have nightmares sometimes also too i did realize that you know 95 percent of my psychedelic trips are pretty good sometimes i'll feel a little derailed but not a problem getting back i'll tell you what though that 31 that's what it was called right? yeah uh, rob zombie oh God. shout out rob zombie dude you're kicking my ass let's just say that i butted him right off that oh. fucking <laughs> that rail <laughs> after about an, what seemed like 
eternity watching that movie. I freaking it was I think bringing it's an hour and 45 minutes, but <laughs> it did feel like really, really long. <laughs> All I know is when I'm sober, I'm not nearly as in tune with things as when I'm on psychedelics. And then you wanted me to change it. But it worked. I couldn't get off that playlist. You wanted me to change it. And I'm just like, nope. Yeah. And handed you the remote because it was just it was all scary movie playlist because right. I was stuck on that. October, yeah. Well, and I was high. Yeah. So how the fuck am I supposed to change it? I'm like, nope, I'm going to go in the same circle of the same movies. Take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just so the vibe just is too. It's I'm too sensitive to vibes. And it was just it was like this chainsaw was just getting to me. So. I got derailed for a minute. Well, there was people that were laying on chainsaw. Yeah. It's just, I can't handle it the same way. So Rob zombie is amazing. with his work. <sighs> Shout just, out, it was my heavy friend. on my heart. <laughs> and then, then we started up Shit's Creek. <laughs> well, but then before, yeah, right before that, I had my little profound experience. It was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. So yeah, it's been nice. Anyways, we'll rehit this later. Yeah, so happy Halloween. We're coming at the end of October. I hope everybody had a good harvest. I hope you're trimming the shit out of your stuff. And uh, uh, also to our patrons, thank you um, for everything. Uh, You know, I actually was able to uh, test, take just a little bit of the money and test Squadcast out this month. So it is a step above just doing Zoom or something simple like that when you do over the uh, internet interviews, which... We're doing a lot of now because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Not really a lot of people really want to come into a closed space still even. Especially someone else's home. Usually it's not ideal. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you uh, for uh, the support from patrons because I can I'm going to run a test this month and see what the feedback is if people think it's worth it. Mm-hmm. And if it is, then I can do that but there's other things we can do too as well so we'll keep the patrons informed of that yes all right so this episode sync angel is who we brought on now i know a lot of our um listener not a lot but at least a lot of the ones i know of and talk to quite a bit um have actually were following sync angel and Mm -hmm. i didn't realize it so i hope that a lot of people enjoy this um sync angel is an ipm specialist as he goes by this guy is smart. Um, check him out. I'll tell you right now on IG, it's Sync Angel, S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. His name is Matthew. And he I does. Was there for that interview. Yeah, yeah, you were there finally for an interview. It doesn't happen, but every like 20 interviews. <laughs> but you were there. Uh, and I got videos. In fact, that reminded me. That's what I want to let the patron Patreon uh, members know is that I'm going to start releasing videos like that um, on Patreon. So I think this will be the first one for the Patreon members. Nice. I'm going to put it up there. I haven't decided what tiers. I might just make it an every tier thing nice. for everybody. That makes everybody's happy. And I'll release it. I want to release it right now just on Patreon. In the future, I think that once things get settled down, maybe we'll switch to YouTube and then make Patreons. We'll just put that up front first for Patreons patron members and then you know and then a couple weeks down the line we'll release it for youtube but for now it's just going to be behind the wall okay and our patron members can enjoy it so i think that one will be our first one with sync angel and it's a pretty good little video i was watching it it's it's good it's really good uh you can also look him up under i believe it was pronounced xenthanol which is z-e-n-t-h-a-n-o-l that's Mm -hmm. on youtube 
and it's all his integrated pest management videos. Uh, there's a lot of shit. So, oh, oh, and I wanted to mention too that we're gonna. I'm gonna try to bring him back on occasionally for a repeat uh, interviews to pick his brain. Nice. And I think specifically, like I want to pick his brain on aphids. I want right. to pick his brain on freaking budworms or whatever Latin name, Latificus, fuck office. <laughs> Bacophagus. <laughs> All right. So here it is. Sink Angel. Organ Love. Organ Love. Stay rooted. Stay rooted. All right. We're sitting here with Matthew, better known as Sink Angel from Instagram. He is a integrated pest management specialist. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I'm very excited too. Now, you know, I've been following you for a while you're incredibly smart your posts are are just full of information and you know ipm is a huge huge <laughs> part of growing uh anything yes, really it sure is uh so we've been really interested in talking to you now i've also noticed you have a lot of following that uh is in the cannabis world and as it should be and uh so we really want to sit down with you and really pick your brain on this stuff how did you get into being a specialist like this so when I was very young, when I was in like preschool age, like six or seven, maybe that's not the appropriate age, but this is kind of how I'm remembering. But um, I was a naturalist even back then. Um, I, I remember, and I and I and I do tell this story um, a lot more lately because people ask me a similar question. I uh, I was an avid fan of uh, Pokemon when I was a child. <laughs> that was not the reason but it certainly cemented that naturalism in myself. Um, the person who actually created Pokemon, uh, Satoshi Tajiri, uh, he wanted to be an entomologist when he was younger, and everyone called him Dr. Bug, and to be quite honest, I very much empathize with that sort of um, interaction with other people, because when I was young, I was interested in insects and um, uh, small animals and plants and that sort of a thing. As I grew older, I joined the uh, Boy Scouts of America. I am an Eagle Scout. Um, I hiked all over the continents of the United States, but mostly in the west, southwest area where I grew up, uh, which is San Diego, California. Um, and honestly, those sort of experiences and interactions really molded and shaped my naturalism, and I knew that's what, something I wanted to do. In high school and college, however, um, I was on track to become uh, somebody who wanted to go into the military. Uh, specifically, I wanted to commission to the U.S. Army, and ideally I wanted to be a military intelligence officer, actually, uh, originally. Uh, but that didn't uh, pan out for a bunch of different reasons, and essentially I chose to not do that and pursue my real passion of sort of horticultural science in general, and ecology really is a big part of that as well. And um, for the last 10 years, I have been working in the IPM realm or in the agricultural sphere. And for the last, really the last like five or six years, there's been a predominant focus on cannabis in particular. But the IPM specialization and all of those sorts of things kind of came after realizing that um, the things that I wanted to do in the military probably wouldn't have been possible. Part of that was naivete. Part of that was um, just sort of a, just a righteous belief that I could do some good with those resources. But, um, I did not believe that, uh, over time. 
and felt that I could do that better um, in a more personable and sort of individual basis. And so far, I've been helping quite a few people. I've, I've helped thousands of people with various agricultural issues in that time. And I feel like I've really fulfilled myself by doing that. And I've really um, enriched at least my small community that I've um, associated with. Being interested in bugs at an early age, what what was the interest? I mean, is it just everything? Like how they work, how they grow, how they what eat benefits everything? each other? <laughs> I mean, what was it? I think that sort of arthropods in general, mm-hmm. your sort of exoskeleton organ, you know, such organisms, like when you look at them, they're very alien from us, right? With the exoskeleton. And, you know, I, I'm very cognizant of like the time period that I grew up. I grew up in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, I, you know, for decades and decades before my own birth, you know, there's uh, research about these organisms that span hundreds of years and, you know, sort of media depictions of, aliens with exoskeletons and you know um if you've seen uh i'm blanking on the name starship troopers you know mm-hmm. like you know, very very classic video video games metroid growing up i loved uh and still do love the metroid series of video games about mm-hmm. um uh bounty hunters thomas and ron going around killing zabesian space pirates and little metroids that kind of look like um like i mean they even use the terminology like larvae and adults and all this sort of a thing um and they kind of like transform and metamorphize over time so i think there were a lot of media depictions of um sort of fictional creatures that kind of were similar that also attracted my interest as a child but also i think that they're kind of interesting from that perspective in general they're so alien to our own physiology and they're also the like one of the most predominant animals on earth so it's not hard to like come across them and and look into them Whereas a, a mammal or something is usually one, a lot more work and two, um, a lot bigger or something like this. Yeah. And isn't there like the old Godzilla, <laughs> the old black and white Godzillas weren't half those monsters insects. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like Mothra and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And where did Godzilla come from? Godzilla is a Japanese product. Uh, Japanese culture I found is a very mm-hmm. big, was a very big sort of causeway into that sort of like, I got, I got to, you know, live in those fictional worlds um, where the arthropods were even more impressive. And um, I feel like a lot of Japanese culture is very um, accepting and encouraging of those sorts of observations. I couldn't tell you exactly why, but um, I guess it just worked out that way. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think uh, I think there's been a lot of things that have used insects as monsters. Uh-huh. I, I personally can't stand spiders. You know, I I can do anything but spiders. <laughs> but yeah. So when it comes to pests and cannabis, I I hate to get right into it, but I'm really interested. I, I imagine you have a lot of people questioning that, don't you? Questioning what? Uh, just bugs, insects, uh, problems with cannabis how to treat it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I had noticed in a post today uh, from, I think it was either today or or yesterday that you had put, maybe it was a couple days ago that you had put that you felt that it was almost, or probably necessary to get rid of certain plants in certain areas or certain gardens or however, um, because of what they do draw in. Absolutely. Yeah. So like from a, from a biosecurity perspective, it makes less sense to, um, and every context is different. I like to use the phrase cultivation context. 
every cultivation context is different, mm-hmm. but in a lot of cases, um, if you're, if you have plants on your property uh, or also outside of your property, but you can't really do much about that usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but inside of your property, at least you can control. And there's a lot of uh, plants that if you're not maintaining them in some way, cause it's okay to have other plants that aren't part of your crop. They can be banker plants. They can be, uh, plants that have some sort of other use. Maybe they have a business use. Maybe they're for beautification or whatever the reason is. Um, but if you're not maintaining them, if you're not like assessing them, then they can re- really can be a haven for pests. And I think the post that you're referring to is the one where I saw some Solanum nigrum in, um, uh, on, in LA <laughs> growing out of the asphalt mm-hmm. uh, like it does. I've seen this very often and it's just eking out this sort of, sort of, unfortunate existence where it's pummeled by it had mealy bugs and uh, a whole slew of spider mites a huge spider mite colony webbing all over the leaves uh and also had white fly so there were three major uh not insects with mites or mites but three major and very common pest organisms that were feeding on this plant and it was very dilapidated but it was still existing and it was still able to produce fruit um and then seeds would come from there but yeah, that's the thing is you gotta, you really gotta maintain your plants in your environment. Um, it, cause all the treatments you do in your crop won't matter if literally like four or five meters from your door, which is not secured and sealed quite, quite well. Um, those mites could just easily walk right in or root aphids or some other sort of pest organism. Gross. It's really gross looking. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, we were looking at your post. Uh, and that thing is just hammered. I mean, if uh, for the listeners, if you go to his IG, you can actually see the post. And uh, and good to know it's called Nightshade. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah, Black Nightshade. Uh, it's actually native to Europe, which I usually think of the Solanaceae being native to South America. Uh-huh. Your, to- your tomatoes, your peppers, you know, capsicum peppers. Um you know, there's, I guess there are other tobaccos elsewhere, but like, yeah, this one's actually native to, um, Eurasia. So fun fact. Yeah. Now, and it was hit with a slew of things and still seemed to, to produce seed. Yeah. As two you put spotted it. spider mites, silver leaf, <laughs> white fly, and some, I don't even know what that word is. Planococcus citri, the citrus oh. mealybug. <laughs> <laughs> So, and you know, uh, at least in our region, we run into a lot of, uh, basically it, it seems like thrips seems to be pretty common mm-hmm. and this is referring to cannabis, um, but thrips. And then it seems like the thrips have backpacks and they're full of spider mites. <laughs> every time, it it seems, does feel that way, doesn't it? It's like every time I see a thrip, I'm like, did you bring your buddy the spider mite with you? Or, uh, I don't know, but. And then caterpillars, spider mites. And then, you know, so over the years, I've pretty much gotten used to the, those, the thrips, the spider mites, uh, PM, stuff like that, which is not an insect issue, but, but, uh, all those issues that seem to, to cause problems. And out of all of it, it seems like the caterpillar wants to give me the most hell. I mean, spider mites are bad, but if you never let them get a hold, uh, you know, it seems like it's okay. But, but caterpillars, even even if I use BT or anything like that, it seems like one or two or three always gets through and just destroys stuff. Yeah. Caterpillars. So there are four main orders of insects that are the most, you could call them the most successful because they're, they're very speciose and they're the largest orders of insects that we have. So 
one of those orders is the Lepidoptera, and those are the moths and butterflies. And one of the adaptations that allowed them to be so successful is that they're smaller, at least a lot of them are, and the caterpillars start small and grow fast, and they eat constantly. That is actually one of the adaptive traits that is considered to be one of the reasons why they're so good at what they do. And shit and A lot constantly. of caterpillars, yeah, they eat constantly and they grow quickly. And um, they metamorphize, right? Yeah. Uh, they're part of a larger group of um, insects called the holometabola, or at least that's one term for it. And that's just a fancy word for the insects that go from, like, larva to pupa to adult. They have that, like, complete metamorphosis mm-hmm. going on. And so a lot of caterpillars um, have adapted to either creating, like, a shelter when they feed or hiding or they drop off of a plant and then they move to another plant to avoid predation. Um, that just kind of as a matter of course. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of different behavioral adaptations that make caterpillars really difficult. And one of the ones cannabis uh, growers are most familiar with is that they might bore into the stem <sighs> or bore into the flower material yeah. where it's very nice and cozy and warm and um, full of trichomes and other plant material <laughs> for them to eat. <laughs> you know, that's the funny part. Well, one thing I got to say is they got, you know, nice taste in, um, you know, property because they go for the biggest buds. They, they they seem to find the biggest best buds and like you know hey this is a nice three-story mansion i'm just gonna take up home here they could treat it a little better <laughs> they could clean up after themselves if they did they wouldn't be as much of a problem yeah and yeah that's the truth that's dude that's very true honestly <laughs> they shit right where they live so you know i don't know you know you would think or at least i would think like from even from like an ecological perspective that that's usually not great mm-hmm. for an animal to like eat, you know, eat where it uh, defecates. Yeah. Uh, usually that's a great way to get um, fecal oral route pathogens. But apparently, I mean, apparently it's not the case here. And that's sort of unfortunate, really. They've proven that's pretty well. it's aberrant usually. Yeah. And, it, and what frustrates me is, you know, I do scope for them a lot. I know they're small and a lot of times I do find them when they're small, but it's, it's like looking at them every day, every day. They just, they must be hiding out. Do they come out at night or when do they come out and they're most active? So technically um, all butterflies are actually derivatives of moths. Uh, if you want to be technical about it, but um, most, so moths usually are active at night. Um, they usually lay a ton of eggs. Uh, like, you know, hundreds of eggs is very common for a lot of these pest species and even non-pest species. Um, so they come out, the moth comes, it, it's either it's either using the moon to navigate or there's a light source that attracts it or there's a pheromone that attracts it or some something attracts it to the area um, or possibly just happened to uh, eclose out of its pupa from this area. And it's, it's moving around, it finds a suitable plant and it lays its eggs on that plant and then those 300 or so eggs, like some percentage of them might be, uh, you know, dead already, or there might be some sort of problem with them and they might die. Uh, but the rest of them do survive. And then they are small little caterpillars that can feed and feed on these plants kind of more innocuously. And then as they grow older, they might display some of those behaviors I was talking about, like sewing the leaves together with um, silk or binding them together, I should say, mm-hmm. um, to make a little shelter. So when you apply something like Bacillus thuringiensis, uh-huh. 
or Uveri Bastiana, like in Botanic Guard or something like that, they don't make contact with the target, and so they are way less effective. And they might not even make, the caterpillar rather, might not even make contact with the tissue that has the um, microbial pathogen in or around it, or on or around it. So that's a problem for any grower because that's the whole way it works. Yeah. Now, uh, just to, just so I'm clear on the BT, doesn't Bacillus, does the, the BT, doesn't it, um, doesn't have to have contact with the caterpillar or can the <laughs> caterpillar eat material later and still the caterpillar can eat the material later and it can still be problematic. The main thing about the bacillus that is uh, lethal to the organism is that it produces these things called cry proteins. Cry proteins are what are actually lethal to the organism. Okay. They're the toxic thing. And so, you might get a product that is just cry protein. You might get a product that is the living Bacillus thuringiensis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's different kinds of Bacillus thuringiensis for different pests, but it's the Kirstaki uh, um, subpopulation or isolate. Uh, there's other ones too, but that's one of the big ones that people use for lep- Lepidoptera. So moths and butterflies and that kind of a thing. And the there are also other microbes like enterobacter that produces chitinase and that chitinase breaks down the chitin that makes up their paratrophic matrix or their exoskeleton, a bunch of other things, and basically causes sepsis in the uh, intestinal gut of the caterpillar. And obviously that's not good. So um, there's a bunch of different ways that microbes can be useful in that way. Uberi bastiana works a lot better, in my opinion, if it's ingested. But if you get enough spores on contact, it can also sort of uh, infect the, um, the organism by penetrating the cuticular layer and the exoskeleton and then just invades the body. And it's a bad way to go, but it works out really well for us. So basically eats it away, the yeah. exoskeleton? Yeah, that's basically it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now I detect a little empathy in your voice. Yeah, it's uh, year, years of practice. Yeah. Oh, no, I <laughs> I just meant, uh, and a lot of times people, I mean, even people listening to this podcast, it's going to be, um, you know, they're going to be like, just screw the bugs and kill them. But um, on the flip side, I just hear the empathy in your voice. You're like, well, it's a bad way to go. And I don't, I just, I never thought of it that way. It is probably a pretty bad way to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, people often ask me, um Matt, do bugs feel pain <laughs> uh, <laughs> since you brought it up? And um, to be honest, it's kind of a philosophical question. That's easy for a lot of people to say, right? I'm not trying to like, you know, um, uh, you're right. I do have some empathy for these organisms that yeah. I'm fascinated with, right? Uh-huh. Sure. I have this. Have you ever heard of the comic um, Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal? It's a web comic. Uh, uh-uh. I have not. You, you might like it. Um, so this guy, his name is Zachary Weiner. That's his last name. And uh, his wife is an entomologist. And so some of his comics deal with insects or something related to like ecology or nature. And I bring it up because I actually have a printout of one of his comics um, where it's a professor and a, a, a woman. And he's like, you like beetles? Great. That's what you'll spend the next 50 years killing. And then the sort of caption, it says, biologists are weird. 
And it's true though. It's like you like something a lot, like insects, for example. What do we need you to do? Kill a bunch of them because they eat our crops. Yeah. So yeah. just because you like the subject matter doesn't mean you're going to end up like facilitating that subject matter, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know. I, I just, it's, it's good to hear that, that someone feels bad about it. Yeah. Cause, cause you know, like I said, cannabis farmers, a lot of them just don't care. They just want them gone. So that's, you know, but it's true. And I guess it, if you have a spiritual leaning towards like Buddhism and stuff, that might be an issue as well. Perhaps. I think that like the way that I look at it is that there are organisms in nature that if they didn't affect things that competed with them, uh, then they would also die and perish. So it's kind of an unfortunate reality of living in on earth. That's how things have adapted. I have, um, I have a video on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, where I go over the cannabis IPM, the uh, ecology of the plant and the, and the various uh, herbivores that feed on it, particularly insects and uh, pathogens and that kind of a thing. And I make the point that um, you have to look at that sort of or origin ecology. You have to understand, well, how do these uh, various symbioses occur? The mutualism and also the parasitism. And, um, you know, if, when you understand how that occurs at the microbial level, at the uh, insect level, um, in the roots, in the stems, in the leaves, phylosphere, the rhizosphere, all of that, then you have a much more complete picture of what's going on. And I think the thing that I care the most about when it comes to using biocontrols, or one of the things I, I care a lot about that's not related to cultivation um, success, is just to apply them in a responsible way, in the same way that you would want to responsibly apply chemical agents or things like that, that they don't get out into the environment and cause uh, havoc. Sure. Now, as a specialist, what would what is your best overall method of IPM? I mean, in general, so like, you know, natural sprays and then follow up with, you know, like some sort of predator bugs or what kind of basic program would you think or do you know is the, the best uh, the best option for the healthiest, you know, for cannabis, people are going to be using it as medicine, so. Mm. So for me, so IPM, the I in IPM is most important. It's the integrated pest mm -hmm. management. And every situation is different, but it's really good to have as many tools in the toolbox as possible. And I like to break down IPM into like five more or less sort of like equilateral um, units. So you have your like physical controls, um, you have your chemical controls, your biological controls. Um, and depending on what we're talking about, I kind of change how I like use, which words I use to sort of encompass these groups. Um, but there's also like environmental controls and genetic controls. Um, so to me, it starts at the very beginning. What, you know, what's your location? What's your environment going to be? A lot of people inherit, envir inherit environments. So, uh, you don't have, you don't necessarily get to choose all of the facets of your indoor facility or your outdoor grow, wherever that might be. So you don't always get a lot of control over that, but if you can control that, then that's really helpful. And then also what you choose to grow, what are the, what's the pedigree? 
You know, does it have resistance towards certain things? Does it have tolerance towards certain things? Is it susceptible to other sorts of things? Uh, we don't really have that data with cannabis. A lot of people will say, oh, well, this is resistant. Why? Well, because I had powdery mildew over here and I didn't have powdery mildew over here. So therefore right. it's resistant. And that's just not really um, uh, strenuous enough of an observation to really prove. I, I don't think I would take that as evidence. Um, that sort of a thing. And then it be, and then after that, it becomes sort of a question of bios, uh, chemical agents, and also cultural controls. I, I don't think I said cultural controls. Those are like your processes, how you do things, your, your standard operating procedures. Um, I know a Gerber grower that I've worked with for a long time. They were dealing with a problem where, do you know Gerber daisies? They're, you've probably seen them in bouquets. Yeah, we um, grow them. They're my favorite. Oh, you do? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, so then this will be very, um, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. So the Gerbera daisy grows out of the crown, right? And when these people, they were cut flowers company. So they, when they harvest, they were harvesting very quickly. And they were leaving the heel of the, um, of the stem of the flower kind of in the crown. And then what would happen is that they were getting really, really good photosynthetic rate the plants were very verdant and lush and, and they were growing really well. Um, and the stem, the heel of the stem, this trunk, it would get infected by uh, yeast. And there was a consultant that came over and told these folks that this was the case. And um, what, what I realized was that if we change how we harvested and we don't leave that infecting uh, uh, heel, then what, what would happen was that the yeast wouldn't infect the plant, of course. But the other thing that we would get is that these beetles would come in out of nowhere and identify them as pineapple beetles and strawberry beetles, which are, uh, which I don't remember the, the Latinate names off the top of my head. But these two beetles are part of a group called Nitidulidae, Nitidulidae, depending on how you were taught to pronounce these Latin phrases. Um, and they're called pleasant sap-feeding beetles. And so they were attracted to the yeast that was fermenting the sugars on the plant. Um, so you got a whole big problem. They saw the beetles. They thought the beetles were causing the infection. But in reality, what was happening was the reverse. The yeast would infect the wound, and then the beetles would come feed on the yeast, feed on the decaying organic matter, and then they would move to other plants, and then they would actually cause the, um, the infestation to, uh, to grow and they would actually bite into the totally healthy plants, and then that would vector the pathogen as well. So a lot of things can be avoided by simply changing a very small aspect, maybe not harvesting quite as many, and then that, that has a lot of uh, cascading effects, emergent properties, as they say. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like likening you know, to cannabis where you kind of clean out the 30 40% at the bottom. That helps with a lot of stuff. Well, and I don't usually prune. Like, I don't take them to bring them inside. I just let them grow. And then once they, the plant or the flower itself starts to die, then I cut them down as low as possible instead of doing the, the vast amount. I'm like, I understand now why uh, the, the one stems, though, look so bad when I did cut them. Yeah, and so you take it all the way to the bottom. I try to. Yeah, I well, we're not using as, them as flowers, though. We're yeah, just, I try to go tillered. as low as possible, but yeah, I can't always get my hand all the way down there. It's hard, and you know, the different cultivars will lend themselves to it. One of these growers, uh, one of the things they were trying to do was they were trying to incite um, 
uh, bud production. So they were trying to make the crown kind of grow faster and so they could have much more production. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I found was that in certain cultivars, um, they were able to sort of like, uh, kind of like a celery stalk. You can, if you, if you break it off in the right direction, it's kind of like a, a, a clean cut. Um, and this was possible with some of the plants, but not always the case when you're out there kind of, when it's, when it's your 2000th flower stem of the day, you know, you're maybe not moving in exactly the same, you know, direction and everything. Yeah. It can be tough. So the other thing is that these beetles were probably only around because the, um, cultivators were close to a strawberry field, you know, the strawberry beetles like strawberries and, uh, the, these growers would actually get a lot of other pests that aren't typical of Gerbera. Ligus bug was another one. Uh, big, big fan of a of a fruit like strawberries again, uh, but not really a historically big pest of Gerbera. But these people would get Ligus, and it would really affect their um, production. So but here's like it sounds like uh, fruits are a big um, attractor for bugs. Like fruit absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Strawberries, they're not trees so much. They're fruit, though. Yeah, no, fruit, I get it. Yeah, no, yeah. I was just saying fruit trees, too, because like it seems like every fruit tree I've ever seen that was not treated for some sort of bugs had them bad. Like, yes. Whether it was worms or some sort of, you know, mildew or fungus or something, mm-hmm. it seems like all fruiting trees have something unless you treat them. Anyway, sorry, sidetrack. No, but it's a good point. I mean, um, I mean, the way I like to look at it is that, like, before humans came along, a lot of these plants were, I mean, for one thing, we've moved a ton of plants from their native areas to other areas, and so they get to interact with new new experiences. Sometimes that means that you put it in a place where most things aren't really adapted to feeding on it, um, and that might work out really well for you. But more often, what I find is that, one, people bring the pests with them, uh, which is, you know, it's very hard, especially, you know, 200 plus years ago, this was even more difficult and the science wasn't there and that sort of a thing mm-hmm. um, to really help with not facilitating that. But um, the other thing is that through human cultivation, a lot of like fruit trees and other sorts of plants are way more bountiful and the fruits are larger and sweeter and all the things that we like about them for the most part are also things that the pets like about them, especially if they're fructivores and they feed on the fruits specifically and not just the leaves or the, um, you know, the bark or the sap or whatever other aspect of the plant they like to feed on. Yeah. Now it seems like a lot of this you're talking about, it relates to polyculture in a lot of ways. Um, I, I guess a lot of, growers and a lot of people in the state uh tr- have been i don't know if it's a trend or if it's something that just because of the culture they lean this way but a lot of people are into you know biodynamic and this polyculture and stuff and there's a lot of talk how if you have the right environment that you really don't need to have um you know any sort of you know nature will take care of itself as as i as they say is there truth to that, that if you have the right environment, the right whatever area you're working with, if you have the right things in there all working in, you know, synergy that you really shouldn't have an over abundance of bad bugs? Well, sort of. Right. Um, 
Because I've in, often wondered about this, you know, because they really tout that if you just do it right, that you shouldn't have, you know, and I just seems like nature still has her problems. They're just it's a lot, much larger area. Yeah, I think that fundamentally it depends. It really depends on the interpretation of like, because I've met, I've met, a, I'm, I'll just say this. I'm a very big advocate of regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm an advocate of, of polyculture and that sort of a thing. Permaculture, I guess I should have used to the word. There's so many words. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's true. Um, I'm a, I'm an advocate for biodiversity and mm. ecological harmony and trying to grow in a way that doesn't upset your trying to be a steward of the land that you have um, as, as little or as much as you have it is a very, I think, admirable goal. And it's something that we should really strive towards and facilitate those who are trying to do this. That being said, I think it's a little too simple. I think it's almost simple to the point of indolence that somebody can say that, well, as long as you just grow in the right way um, and you just let nature be nature, then everything will work out for you because historically that's never been the case for farmers um, <laughs> pretty much ever. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, there are tons of huge historical cases and this is where like IPM and ecology uh, you know, it's a very multidisciplinary uh, field and you start to talk, you know, at a certain point you have to talk about like anthropology and you start to talk about like human evolution and human um, societal development and all this sort of cool stuff because we've been growing plants for a long time and um, much longer than we've been like cultivating in an agricultural system even. And so that's kind of an interesting take as well. But like, you know, you get a famine, you get um, a bad couple hundred of years of, um, of uh, a drought or high heat. You know, that's some, some historians believe that this is one reason why uh, the fall of the Bronze Age occurred was because um, a lot of places that would produce the tin uh, that you would combine with the copper to make bronze. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fell, they got ransacked. A lot of bad things happened all at once. There was a period of time at the end of the Bronze Age where there were tons of earthquakes going on. Um, and there was a big sort of a European, Northern European movement from that area down into the Mediterranean basin, into um, Africa, Egypt area, um, and also uh, into the Middle East and that sort of a thing. And why did this happen? Well, one of the, one of the thoughts is that there was actually long periods, like almost 100 or 200 years of like drought, if I remember correctly. Um, high heat it caused a lot of problems and so there was a big population movement and then that kind of turned into like just a ransacking that happened um, across different places where other people were having already tons of stressors and political issues and war and you know so my point is that and I kind of got on a tangent there I'm sorry but you know like things can happen outside of your control all the time and you can do everything right and still fail. And I think it's um, almost like gaslighting people to say that if you just grow in the proper way, then everything will be taken care of because I don't think there's enough historical data to show that. And to be honest, adaptation to new places is what makes insects in particular um, so viable Mm -hmm. as a life form. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, because like I said, and that's kind of what I was alluding to previously, you take a plant, 
which is really a, uh, to, to use a heady term, a hollow biome of all the different genomes of all the different organisms that might associate with that plant. So you might have a virus that doesn't have any symptoms that's in the plant. Like you don't know. Um, there might be various fungi and bacteria on or in or around the plant when you transplant it or when you take the seed, maybe there are seed endophytes and they're inside the seed right. already. Right. You know, so you don't, you don't know what you're doing and people 200 plus years ago certainly didn't know all of that necessarily in the way that we do now at least. Um, so you bring it to a new environment and you might have a real, you might really work out because nothing's ever interacted with that plant and maybe has some defensive compounds or some sort of uh, adaptation that makes it really good or, and much more commonly uh, you actually bring the pest with you and it's the only thing that they can eat or it's one of the only things that they have adapted to and now you've got a huge problem or, or you bring a pest that will feed on tons of other things and now you've got an even bigger problem. So that happens a lot. And that's why we have like invasive species organizations across the world um, to deal with that kind of a thing. Yeah. And I mean, I, we've talked about this several times, I think even on the show and that, you know, um, people and, um, organizations have used uh bugs for certain things like i believe california used russet mites for for roadside mm -hmm. uh um, weeds or something i don't know i i, I don't know actually all, don't quote me talk about that. that topic yeah absolutely yeah please yeah so i actually have a video on that um i have a cannabis uh myth video or cannabis cultivation myth video that i made a couple of years ago at this point and that's actually somewhat of a misunderstanding. Okay. Uh, that's totally okay. Uh, it's easy to misunderstand. Um, so, so Caltrans and the ODOT, the Oregon Department of Transportation, um, they, they had a really big um, tumbleweed problem. And these tumbleweeds were exotic to the area. One of them was Russian star thistle. Um, I believe it's, the, and I think the names have changed actually since one of them was like Assyria Salsoli, I think, if I'm remembering right. And there was an Assyria, there was a, there was a uh, russet mite, you're right, there was an aerophyte mite that fed on that Russian star thistle. Um, there was another one, I think there was a yellow star thistle or something as well. Yeah, we have those all over Medford still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, are. exactly. Yeah. So, so, so what would happen is that, they were investigating, there was a biological unit sort of like, they were like investigating whether this could be an adequate biocontrol agent for these tumbleweeds. And they found that, or they found that they could be because they, they had really great examples where like, here's a plant that was uh, infested by the rest of mites and here's a plant that wasn't. And there was a, a, a dramatic difference, but <laughs> they never actually ended up using them okay, uh, for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I know that for a lot of people, they, heard about this through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. They searched it. They saw the word russet mite and went, that's it. They're sort of like uh, getting rid of all the cannabis growers. They're, they're spreading russet mites everywhere. Monsanto <laughs> made russet mites. It's or a conspiracy. Like <laughs> it's a conspiracy. Um, and that just didn't happen. First of all, because the hemp rest of my is a specialist and doesn't feed on any other plants. So the <laughs> government great. would have to raise tons of cannabis plants to feed the mite that they're then going to release. apply. Release. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
surreptitiously across the continental U.S. This seems like a logistical nightmare. <laughs> it does. It does. And I'm always really careful about, you know, talking about those things because I know a lot of it is just just exactly like that. So when I do mention it, I, I, I try not to take any, you know, don't with a grain of salt. Yeah, don't don't take it too seriously. Um, but it's something to talk about because now now I know, you know, now I've got some some more facts behind it. Uh, I think what happens though with cannabis is it just seems like the 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 pests that generally, you know, affect the plant are can be vicious. I mean, spider mites for God's sakes, they're horrible if they get out of control and a lot of these things that do if they do get out of control are just pretty much impossible to ever get back in control you know but but russomites are one of those by the time if you don't have a keen eye and you're scoping you know <laughs> you might it's just going to be too late uh so so i think there's a lot of fear you know in the bugs that that, that tend to to focus on cannabis at mm -hmm. least for us and i want you to speak to this it seems like so We've been growing in a specific location now for what, five or six years? Mm -hmm. it, it gives you a, a good opportunity to kind of get in sync with that particular area because everything is, you know, you go to a different spot and it might be a lot different. And it seems like though, in this little area that we've been growing in, we went through waves each year of something different. So I think the very, very first year was like spider mites mm -hmm. and, the, and thrips. And then the year after that was russet mites. And the year after that, caterpillars it, really bad. Was caterpillars, and then the year after that, I think like last year was aphids. Aphids were we insane. Had rust oh, rust! Year. We went through rust. Yeah, yeah. There but, was fungus. But aside from the you know fungus bacteria stuff, do do bugs do that? I mean, is that a yearly thing where it's almost like the flu? You don't know which one's going to pop up each year, and so you kind of just <laughs> prepare for all. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. Actually, um, yes, absolutely. So. There are various agricultural extension agencies that like they're like their literal like job is to help you help your agricultural crops or your gardens or whatever mm -hmm. not die or <laughs> at the very least not be a host to things that are really bad yeah. um, for, the, for the general area. And um, a lot of times it is kind of like what you're saying where the sort of pest pressure has to be analyzed. And there's some places like I, I posted on my Instagram maybe last week or a few weeks ago, like a map of grasshoppers and sort of where certain grasshoppers were expected to be based on like the year before's um, a sort of actual, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of observations. Mm -hmm. And, so like some, a lot of organisms will be like on a year basis where like certain seasons of the year are going to be worse. Um, maybe because it's that part of the time where the adults are looking to lay eggs or maybe it's that's because that's where the larvae have just hatched and now they're going to look for plants to feed on. So definitely it can be like that. Sometimes it's seasonal and it's recurring and it's the same time every season. Sometimes though, there's like a meta, right? Where um, for a bunch of different reasons, you have sort of a, a sort of a cascade effect where kind of like what I said about the bronze age collapse where um, multiple things can happen where maybe the extension agencies don't get a lot of funding and so they're not able to do that assessment. And so, and then like a new shipment comes in of, from some other country and a new pest comes out and people aren't aware of it. And that happens a lot too. Um, 
but yeah, you should be prepared for all instances, but your location is a big part of that. Your biogeographic location is essential in my opinion. Well, um, we're looking, those- why is there a line? Why do they stop <laughs> right at the cascade range? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're look again, we're still looking at your IG and, uh, we've got that map that you put up of the cat, uh, cat- oh my gosh, the grasshoppers. grasshoppers. And, uh, I That's didn't funny. really realize that was there's that much of stuff going on out there. That is crazy. Uh, you know, circling back to the fact that there's plants that you shouldn't have in your garden. Obviously, there's probably plants you should have. We grow in kind of a small plotted area, so I try to maximize that idea. Like I try to have only plants that are gonna uh, harbor beneficials or predators or whatever. Um, and try to get things, get rid of things. Like I won't grow a melon around here. This doesn't have to do with bugs per se, but like melons, I won't grow because of the PM issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's same idea with insects. Like a, there's a lot of plants you don't want to have. Can you give us some examples of plants you shouldn't have around cannabis? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, again, it's context dependent, but mm-hmm. like uh, for example, one of the powdery mildew species of which there are tons. Um, that was confirmed as a pathogen of cannabis in particular was, and I have a pest primer video on my YouTube channel, Zentanol. It's Golovinomyces sicurocerum, the lettuce powdery mildew. But the name is very misleading because it doesn't just infect lettuce. It infects a ton of other plants, and cannabis is one of them. And so, um, you know, if you want to keep, like you say about the melons, like, it's possible. It's very possible that the powdery mildew that and I think cucurbits are actually one of the uh, groups of plants that um, lettuce powdery mildew also infest. So yeah, melons would be a good example. Um, and there are other powdery mildews that can also infect these plants that might not at all infect cannabis, but you can't really tell the difference by just looking at them. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of an issue. So you don't want to play the guessing game necessarily. I know people who like to, because they're they're not just avid cannabis growers, they're just avid sort of cultivators in general. And I'm a huge fan of that, but it becomes a huge issue for some people because they're trying to grow all these food crops for themselves. Maybe they're growing up on the hill, um, maybe somewhere in Humboldt, or mm-hmm. wherever, and it's uh, it's very endearing, but it's also difficult uh, for the reasons I just stated. Um, a plant, another other plants you might not want to have around are plants that tend to be so. Uh, how do I put this? There's a lot of plants that are great vectors for insects because they don't have a lot of great uh, resistances or tolerant, or even if they're tolerant to the pest, they can still be a haven for that pest. Um, a lot of your, in my opinion, uh, cucurbits, like you just mentioned, so your melons and squashes mm-hmm. and that kind of a thing are, are a big magnet in that way. Um, you don't want to have, for example, a lot. So stone fruit can be an issue, especially for like the rice root aphid. Um, also various grasses. Like why I, I see this all the time where even in like urban centers where Somebody's like, wow, I have a rice root aphid problem. Um, you know, can you help me out? And I go over to help them out and we take a look at their property and there's a bunch of like wild rye that's like sprouted up near like the asphalt or like in that one area where there's like some soil and, um, you know, nothing really else growing up and I'll pluck the, 
the um, stem from like one of these plants and there's a bunch of rice root aphids right on it because they feed on tons of grasses, but they also feed on stone fruit and rowan and a bunch of other plants. And so knowing the hosts of these pests will forearm you against their infestation because you can just uh, destroy the plants nearby at least that would be a, a, a host. Now, you were talking about the rice root aphid. That's an aphid that does affect cannabis, right? That's right. Now, is that the same thing as a hemp aphid, or is that something completely different too? Completely different. So there's two different types of aphids that can affect cannabis? There's more than two aphids oh that can affect cannabis. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. It so, is, isn't it? Yeah, well, and so uh, so most likely what I'm seeing is on our area, on our plants are probably uh, hemp aphids then. What are their colors? Uh, they seem to be, it depends on what stage. It seems like they're like a light green and then they kind of turn to a... They like kind a, of fade. Kind of turn to like a tan or something. And then, and they also include flyers too. Yeah. So Yeah, so it could be, I mean, I noticed that so cannabis aphids kind of like a light green, mm-hmm. almost like a white color sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's probably what you're dealing with. Right, well, root aphids? Huh? We uh, have a lot of hemp fields around here. Yeah, we have a ton. Um, they cut back, what, 30% this year? 40 or something, yeah. Yeah, 30 to 40% to what they were last year. But last year we were like heavily infested with it. And then this year we just started seeing stuff. Yeah. Like just started seeing aphids on our plants. And last year it was, we had to fight them most of the year. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And it was probably from those hemp fields being put up. And but, not taken care of. Yeah. Almost assuredly. And so. Almost assuredly. Yeah, which is unfortunate because we really didn't have hemp aphids around here be previous to those <laughs> never. hemp farms. And so. Yeah, never like that. We had regular aphids, but we never had. We never had hemp aphids. Yeah, so like the aphids that you get on roses, that won't bother hemp then? Potentially not. There's a a lot of aphids are generalists. So like, for example, there's some like green peach aphids or like melon aphids that I've seen, speaking of melon. They're called these names commonly, but they feed on tons of other plants. And, you know, that's when I do my pest primer videos, which I have one for both the forodon cannabis, the cannabis aphid, and also... Uh, Ropalciphum rufi abdominale, which is the rice root aphid. Um, and I go over like what they look like, what they feed on, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, and that kind of a thing. Um, but there's tons of other pl- other aphids that could potentially be on cannabis that we just haven't identified. And that's one part of sort of um, cannabis cultivation as it becomes more and more mainstream and as more and more research um is devoted to cannabis cultivation specifically in various parts of the globe, um, we'll see a lot better um, documentation of those pests. But yeah, those two pests, those two species that we just mentioned, the cannabis aphid and the rice root aphid are like the main ones that people need to watch out for. And what do the rice root aphids look like? So the species epithet for this um for the rice root aphid is rufi abdominale. Rufia means red, and abdominale refers to its abdomen. So it can sometimes have a, like a reddish abdomen, okay. a little bit of mm-hmm. like reddish tinge, but it's usually a dark color, like a black color or like a dark purple. I've seen. I don't think that I've seen those. That tends to be the case. Yet. 
thank God. No, I haven't either. Now, just I've be only seen the ones on the milkweed, and then yeah. the ones that we usually have. Oh yeah, like the milkweed aphids are like a bright orange, right? Yeah, and we've I've, oh those are horrible. There's too. it's sad because the fact that you know monarch butterflies used to be really plentiful around here, and noticed that a lot of the milkweed is all infected by that. Well, I think there's less and less butterflies, and, and there's just more and more aphids. Yeah, on those things. But. Yeah, and people also plant uh, tropical milkweeds and various other milkweeds that aren't you know tuned into the native kind of uh, seasons here mm-hmm. and so that can cause sort of problems where um, when populations of monarchs are like out of sync or something well rather I guess the more fundamental problem is that you can cause issues where uh, milkweed that doesn't that doesn't have like the same seasonal synchronization as the monarchs and other pests means that they can be havens for the pests outside of the normal time this is a problem because then what happens is that these like tropical or exotic milkweed that can be a host for the native pests like the, well, if you want to call them pests, but like, like the herbivores, I should say the monarch butterflies and the, you know, the milkweed aphids and that kind of a thing. Well, then they can feed on these other milkweeds. And then when it is the monarch time period, well, then the aphids can just travel into the other milkweeds that the monarchs more commonly feed on. And they're all, they've already got this sort of primer of a population that will compete with the monarchs. And so you have this uh, competition problem ecologically. Yeah. Okay. I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder if mine was a tropical milkweed. Yeah, I we didn't had, get we, any bugs on them. No, whatsoever. we planted some, some milkweed that I don't know what kind it is. It's way different than your regular milkweed. It's much larger. It's pretty. It larger never leaves, got any yeah. aphids or anything, but... Mm-mm. Um, not a milkweed expert, so I wouldn't be able to tell no. you. I, I could, if I had a key and I could see the plant, I probably could. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but that is like one of the one of the like many myriad considerations mm-hmm. like people have to make. And it's like another thing is that I don't I don't like to I don't think it's healthy or helpful uh, for people who want to help the ecology to kind of talk down or tell them that like, Oh, you planted this wrong plant. You're going to, you know, destroy it. You're going to disrupt the environment, kill everything. And it's not helpful for anyone, but at the same time, that's kind of the sort of irony of the situation is that everything here is so multifaceted. Uh, IPM is super multifaceted. And that's one of the many considerations you have to make. Is this plant going to be a problem? Do I care more about growing the plant because it looks a certain way um, than I do about like how it will affect the natural ecology? There's a um, citrus uh, pest called the Asian citrus psyllid. It's ravaging uh, the citriculture in Florida. Something like 70 or 80% of citriculture is destroyed in the oh, last shit. like four or five years because of it. Um, and it's also in California. And um, it transmit this pathogen called a phytoplasma um, and it's called Liberibacter um, it's in that genus and uh, when people grow citrus in their residential areas they can also vector the pest and also the pathogen so kind of the dilemma that, that crops up is that well should residential people be allowed to grow these plants when they can basically when there's no like government over regulation or anything like that and it's kind of a it's kind of a rights issue, right? I, I I think that people should be able to grow what they want, 
but at the same time, it's kind of like, well, if you allow these people to grow these plants, eventually you're just going to have to tear out all the orchards because it can't. Up until recently, I should say, it, there was no treatment for the pathogen. You got the pathogen, it would gnarl your trees in like a growing season, and then mm-hmm. all of your orchard will be dead, and like the, fr- the ripe fruit would become unripe, leaves would fall, branches would become withered. It was it's really bad. And Weird. so like, yeah, so it's kind of like, what do you do in those situations? What's the right thing to do? It's kind of up in the air. You're pointing out a lot of things because uh, I, I haven't thought about that. We are surrounded by a lot of orchards, like mm-hmm. a lot, a lot of orchards, grapes, uh, peaches, pears. Um, what else do we got around us? We've got Pretty much it. Vineyards, cannabis. Yeah, we've got vineyards, pears. cannabis. We got all that. And it's I, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I know I see other stuff in town, like I see prune tree or uh, plum trees and I see, you know, I see other fruits in town, but I hadn't thought about that it could affect the trees or the crops that are out there and vice versa and vice versa. Yeah. I'm sure. Cannabis has brought in a lot of stuff like the aphids. That, <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, perhaps. So yeah. I, um, and you know, it's go, circling back to what you were saying, mm-hmm. uh, Craig about how like having certain like plants around can have this sort of issue. Rice root aphid loves stone fruit. So some of the plants that you mentioned, like some of the orchard plants, they, they would definitely host alternate uh, between grasses and stone fruit, but they also happen to feed on cannabis as well, which doesn't really fit in those two um, categories. So sometimes, like, even if you have all this information about what they tend to go for, sometimes, you know, they just go after something else and nobody could could have predicted that, you know. Sure, sure. And it seems like they could probably cross over to new things too, right? Like, like the potatoes able- to their steak. They just needed more courses for their meal. Yeah, they're tired. They're tired of one meal. <laughs> yeah. One kind of it's meal. It's actually, aphids actually are very successful specifically because of that. It's because they can adapt, or at least the generalists tend to be able to adapt to um, various plant species. And you get some some uh, aphid species wherein um, they have like two main host groups that are really disparate. They're not really related very much. And it's kind of an evolutionary quandary. How did that happen? Like, how did you adapt to this kind of plant and these groups and these groups? And they're totally uh, very different. And I guess one of the theories is because of like just mass extinction, but they were able to sort of eke out an existence and kind of one colony gets a little bit established. Maybe the plant isn't totally for whatever various reasons. It's not like, they're not able to like reproduce very well or there's like toxins they're not accustomed to dealing with or their symbionts aren't able to deal with them. Uh, but then over time they get a little bit better and a little bit better. Same thing for spider mites too, two spot spider mite. They're, they're on over 1200 different plants, but those populations are able to adapt uh, over many, many, many generations. And then you have subpopulations that do feed on the plants very well. And so that happens too. Well, and, you know, with spider mites and aphids, it seems like those many, 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 many generations happen in about 10 minutes. I do. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they can produce at a rate that's unheard of. And so those many generations doesn't take too long. I do have a question. Uh, Okay. So we had an example with a farm that we went and toured where one of their hundreds and hundreds of cannabis plants was completely infested in aphids 
none of the surrounding plants was. Do you remember that? Was that out uh, in? Yes. Okay. Yes, out in Weimar. We won't use names. No, but it was really crazy because we we saw the plant was like all the bottom branches were covered in aphids and there was plants that were damn near touching it and there was no aphids on it whatsoever. But it was the same strain, um, just it it was not touching the other plants. Yeah, that was odd. That does happen over time. You know, that does happen. Sometimes it's because the aphids are just not in sense to go somewhere else. Um, it could be the season that you're in. I, I have confidence that over enough time period, uh, the aphids either move to another plant or move to those surrounding plants because um, there's like, so the way that aphids sort of test out if a plant is viable or not, there's a lot of cues. Um, they do use their eyesight somewhat, uh, but they also use chemical cues. Um, they might avoid uh, areas where they might pick up scents that they associate with predators or parasites or microbes even. Um, the pea aphid, Cirrhosiphum uh, pisum, is very famous for, maybe not very famous, but there's some research that shows that they were able to avoid picking up um, a pseudomonas bacteria, if I remember right, uh, because the pseudomonas produced a compound that fluoresces uh, very, very at a very certain spectrum of light. I can't remember exactly what it was. We don't see it, um, but uh, or maybe it was UV. Regardless, the insect was able to detect this sort of like I think it was like UV reflection uh, that we humans can't visually see. Um, and so they would avoid those plants because those bacteria could um, infect them and cause them problems. Oh, that's so, crazy. And then they also like take test bites. They uh, drop their stylet into the plant like um, <laughs> and they go fishing around. They have and a little sip. <laughs> they have a little sip, yeah. Which is actually problematic because uh, aphids account for like 50% of plant virus vectors. Oh, um, God. Oh. And so, yeah, and so they only need to take a little sip a little sippy sip and Ugh. then uh, the virus gets transmitted. So even if you're not, that's the thing. Even if it's not a host plant, it might still be able to vector this virus, whatever that virus might be. Okay. So. Okay. Oh, so dirty. <laughs> My question is then, is that if a plant gets infected with, with aphids, it, we're not even going to say a heavy infection, just, just a light. They just got on the plant they've taken sips and, uh, and they transfer a virus. Are you, depending on when that plant's in a cycle and what kind of virus, you might not even know that virus is there. By um, harvest, right? Like you okay. might harvest a plant that has a virus, not even know it. That's definitely a possibility, especially if it's at the very end. Oh. Um, a lot of the viruses, I mean, so most plant viruses are not asymptomatic. Some plant viruses are, and cannabis even has a uh, cannabis cryptic virus, which I have a pest primer video about on my YouTube channel, um, and it's asymptomatic, um, and we don't really know a lot about it for a lot of obvious reasons, but most viruses are not like this. There's a couple of cannabis viruses in particular that, you, uh, since we're on the topic, I just want people to be aware of. I always talk about them. Um, because the cannabis virome is very understudied right now and it's happening a lot in Colorado 
in Israel, and um, I'm sure it's happening in places that are undocumented or unreported, rather. And the first one is um, the beet curly top virus. So that was discovered, actually it was discovered a few years ago, but it was confirmed like in 2019. Um, and this was in Colorado and beet curly top virus is vectored by a leaf hopper called the beet leaf hopper. And it's actually a common virus in the continent of the United States, but also in Africa, it's also in the Middle East. There's a few different strains of BCTV. Um, and there's some conjecture about whether or not other pests could also carry the virus potentially. Uh, but really the beet leaf hopper, Circulifer tenalis is the only one that we know currently that's really the big vector. Um, and that causes stunting and other problems. So you would probably see an issue if you were affected by it. Uh, the other one is Lez chlorosis virus, which is a creamy virus and it is, um, it was found in Israel's uh, authorized farm for cannabis, and it's probably been there for a few years, if I remember the research right. Um, but it's also found in Southern California as well, the, the creamy viruses in general, and LCV in particular. And it was found to infect cannabis, and it causes yellowing and stunting and other sorts of problems too. It's, I have no doubt in my mind that more and more people are going to be infected with this virus before we have a really competent way to deal with it. And the most competent way to deal with it uh, is to have a really strict set of protocols for um, that sort of tissue and plant movement. Because if with you, when you don't have that, it's just, you're just no, you're just one vector away. So, and so for the LCV, the vector is, sorry, I didn't say this before. It's uh, the silver leaf white fly, the Musea tabasi. Which is one of the which is the white fly you were seeing in that IG post from mm. my account. Um, now the silver leaf white fly is sort of a problem because it's got a ton of different what are called biotypes, so it's adapted to a lot of different plants and various parts of the world. Um, it's actually really interesting for this reason, uh, but it also is a super vector of over 180 plant viruses known. That doesn't mean that one individual you come across will have all 180, you know, got to catch them all viruses, but it might have one or two. And those viruses might not infect the plant that you're dealing with, whether it's cannabis or whatever, but it might. And so again, you just kind of run into this problem where if this is allowed to run rampant, one thing will happen is that uh, more white flies will pick up that virus uh, in the sort of natural population. Uh, or naturalized population. And then the other problem is that you'll just get more sort of incidences of it in various places. And if people don't control it, this can become sort of an epidemic. Now, do any of these viruses pose any health threats to humans using cannabis as a medicine in any form, whether that's cooking, smoking, vaping, any of it? It shouldn't. Um, I'm not a virologist, but my understanding is that um, most, so we're exposed to what's called eDNA all the time, in environmental DNA, free DNA. That's kind of just like, again, like I said, in, in the plants or just kind of around when we breathe, when we eat food. There's tons of, like, as much as it might make you an agoraphobe, there's tons of cases where we ingest things that you probably wouldn't want to, um, whether they're like inert 
proper uh, compounds or not so inert compounds or whatever. There is a virus called pepper model mosaic virus. I think that's the name of it. Um, if I remember right. And that virus was considered to be potentially, and still contentious. Um, it, it was associated with like gastrointestinal distress. Um, a lot of viruses, the way that they're able to be vectored by insects, for example, is that they are able to infest um, the vector in some way. There's a tomato yellow leaf virus that in also infests um, or is a vector from uh, the silver leaf Wi-Fi that I mentioned. And when it, so what it does is it actually neurogenerates the host, the white fly. Why is this important? Well, what happens is that if a white fly, uh, so it, the white flies are, a lot of insects are attracted to the color yellow, also green, also UV. Um, and so in the case of the white fly, it's attracted to yellow. Well, the tomato yellow virus that I mentioned makes tomato leaves yellow. Um, so the white fly is attracted to the yellow, it takes up the virus, and then the virus actually causes neurodegenerative issues in the, in the white fly, and it becomes less picky. So why is that good? For the virus, it's great because now instead of the white fly most likely going to another plant that also has the virus, it will actually not have that uh, for preference. And so it might go to a, a green leaf, which is ostensibly a plant that is not infected. And so then it will vector the virus and then that will continue the process. Uh, malaria, the plasmodium that causes malaria in mosquitoes also causes a lot of problems for the mosquito vector itself. So this does happen. But as far as humans are concerned, um, I think the data is kind of still out there. Um, so that's kind of a, a good thing. We have a very strong omnivore stomach, and it really takes out a lot of things. But we might find that this is not, I mean, who knows what will happen in the future. But for now, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. Now, with, um, you know, insects and stuff, they you know, a lot of these, especially like spider mites and stuff, they can build a tolerance to a lot of these sprays or chemicals and stuff like that as well. Um, it, I mean, do you have any comment on that in terms of, um, you know, using IPM um, and, and how it gets, they get resistant to things? Absolutely. So um, resistance management is a big part of IPM. And it's a really important thing to consider. And I know a lot of people out in, with cannabis in particular, but tons of other plants, other crops. It's very difficult because sometimes you only have a few chemical agents that are available to you, either for legal reasons or logistical reasons or um, philosophical reasons or whatever the reasons might be. You only have a selection of different tools and some of those are chemical agents. And usually what happens with chemical resistance um, or enzymatic resistance or whatever is that the pest population already has the resistance uh, in its population. So you're really just selecting for those insects that don't have that resistance already. And so like, for example, a different Gerber grower I was working with was dealing with leaf miners and uh, American serpentine leaf miner is not a typical you know, huge pests for Gerber growers. But what they found when we did bioassays of the leaf miner was that over a span of like five years, the, um, the resistance to five different insecticidal agents 
was it would it would go up and down massively. So like one population would have like a resistance that was considered 600 times uh, the like normal resistance rate. Those larvae could swim in um, <laughs> what was it? Zero. Uh, I don't remember the chemical agent on the top of my head, but like, yeah, it was like really massive. And um, the next the next year, nothing. The total the, the population that we assayed was was totally um, susceptible. So this so when you don't use a chemical agent for a long time that a population is resistant to, then it kind of bleeds away over time because there's no selection pressure to keep it around. Um, so that's why one aspect of IPM or resistance management is to use a bevy of different chemical compounds so that no one is resistant to too much in the whole in, this, in the great population. Mm-hmm. Usually there are small changes, especially for chemicals that affect the um, neurology uh, of a, of an insect or like its musculature or, some, or like the ion channels or something in the physiology. Usually it's a very slight site mutation. So the chemical doesn't like uh, bind with the receptor very well. Um, but these are, I mean, like you, like you illustrated earlier, um, a lot of insects, what makes them so adaptable is that they have a small, they're sort of a small lifespan and they make many generations over the same span as another organism might. And so when they make masses of themselves like that, you get all these small little imperfections or mutations. And sometimes those mutations are really great and other times they don't really matter. And that's one of the cases where they matter quite a big, quite a big deal. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. <clears throat> There's a couple of questions I wanted to get to before I, before you left. And, and um, one of them was, uh, you know, predator mites or not, not predator mites, but predator insects, predator bugs, beneficials. Are they really worth it? In terms of, you know, if, per, if especially if you're having to purchase them and stuff, um, not just bringing them in naturally, but if like if I'm purchasing ladybugs or lace wings or even praying mantises or any of that stuff, does that stuff really work and is it worth it? I would say that uh, biocontrols are worth it, but your cultivation context really dictates whether something is, whether anything is worth it. So what are some of the factors that matter? One of the factors that matters is your location. Maybe you actually can't. Um, and I've come across this many times where a person cannot use biocontrol agents because they live in a country or they live in a county or whatever where it's not possible for them to get them either for legal reasons or logistical reasons, not enough or, um, or, or not the right species is allowed or whatever. So that's one reason why biocontrols won't be useful. Another reason is cost. A lot of biocontrols are expensive, and usually you have to have the best effects. You want them even either prophylactically, so you want to be applying them before you even have the problem, right. which, of course, to somebody who's spending tons of money already on tons of other things from a commercial perspective, <laughs> and even from a residential perspective, yeah. it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a lot to ask for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a totally valid, um, you know, aspect of biological controls. And it's one that I have to deal with a lot. It's very important that you have a budget and that you know what you're going to be getting into and that you try to set up a relationship if you can with various insectaries or biocontrol um, groups or organizations. And also you have to understand, like, you can't just use any other any old biocontrol. You have to know what the pest is that you're controlling, 
does this biocontrol actually work against that pest? There's plenty of times where I've worked with people who were using the wrong predatory mite or whatever to affect a certain uh, target, and they've already spent thousands of dollars on you know this biocontrol program. So that's kind of an unfortunate thing that can also happen. Um, and then whether or not you can integrate those biocontrols with your chemical agents, with your other biocontrol agents, with your environment, that sort of a thing, just making sure that uh, there's a good integration and you don't have a lot of um, bad negative interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's those are really the big main points, I would say. Also having the labor force to, one, be able to apply them appropriately, and two, to be able to crop scout and assess the efficacy. You can't do this blindly. You shouldn't do any treatment blindly. You should be scouting your crops and being able to uh, sample in a standard way and be able to tell week to week or every day or however you're doing it um, how effective your treatment regimen is. Sure. Now, uh, are, are most of these, in your opinion, that is, um, are a lot of these products that are out there, not necessarily harsh chemicals, but like the like the um, essential oils or um, like, you know, using BT, like using bacteria, are those safe for cannabis users overall, do you think, in your opinion? I think a lot of them can and should be. Um, I'm... I'm always a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm always a little trepidatious um, with applying things, even like kind of close to flower. And the reason for this is because the, um, the oils and that sort of thing, the products that you're getting, the processing could be a problem. The, uh, you don't really know what the inert ingredients are. Um, a lot of times groups, sort of um, intentionally obfuscate what that is. Um, and because cannabis in particular is so, um, uh, I guess there's a lot of regulations, right? So mm-hmm. you really want to make sure that things are okay. And you want to make sure that you're, you're giving people safe products to consume. And so I feel like in some cases they're a lot better, they're a greater boon, but I think it's a legitimate sort of, point to make is that you don't really know all of the different things that go into a product. You might see the active ingredient, you might see that there's inert ingredients, but what inert ingredients, which ones and why, (laughs) and what do they do? And um, I'm a big advocate for using the less harsher compounds, the more targeted compounds or biocontrol agents. And I think those are really good to utilize. And I don't think really that they're going to be a problem for cultivators. Uh, and also for consumers, but there's always the possibility that a product is sort of um, problematic for reasons that you wouldn't you wouldn't consider when you just look at the label or whatever or the marketing. Well, sure, and we've seen that in Oregon uh, over the last few years. Actually, it's been huge because once we went legal in 2015, OLCC started. Well, Oregon, I don't know if it's OLCC, but Oregon started testing products that were on the shelf. And there's been hundreds of products that have been either pulled or mm-hmm. not legal to use on cannabis here. Yeah. And a lot of it was off label 
ingredients. Yeah, we everything has to be OMRI certified in order to do any sort of recreational grow around here. Right, but even then, they're, they're, they still and they still occasionally find new products that still have stuff that's not even listed on the label, which mm-hmm. excuses them from being used. And it's like they slip under that radar. The fact that and think about how many years. And still now there's a lot of states that don't have these products tested, but um, think of all the years that we didn't know about all these products that did have these extra ingredients and just never knew. Yeah. So absolutely, you know, which is creepy. It is a real thing is what I'm saying, because we found it over and over and over here in the state. And it's made it to where there's not a lot of stuff to use. that's okay to use, Mm -hmm. but that's just the reality of, of keeping safe. The argument there too is that if you use a lot of biocontrols like uh, insects and stuff that you're going to get their material, dead bodies, parts, and fecal material in your plant too as well, which could cause health problems. Is that something that's even legitimate or um, something to even be concerned about? That's a good question. So I don't think that in the vast majority, vast, vast, vast majority of cases, this is um, an issue. But um, there's a really great uh, report made by the Danish Ministry of Agriculture, and I can send that to anyone who'd like to see it. It's a really large document. And they talk about how, like, um, applicators of biocontrols, and I think these were predatory mites, um, they elicited an immune response with various workers who were applying them. Um, So some people had severe reactions. Now, I just want to say that I've never encountered anyone personally who's ever had these issues. Um, but as I, go, as I go into this, you'll also find that some people had immune responses that they weren't aware of. Sorry about that. And um, the issue was that the biocontrol agent was, um, so like some people would have an immune response where they would have um, antibodies that would be produced. Uh, in response to the contact with the fragment. Some people would have um, issues where they would have an immune response to get like rashes or like hives or that kind of a thing on their skin. And other people would have immune responses where they, they, they developed the antibodies, but they didn't feel wrong or fine or didn't have any problems. Some people would get a little bit of like a, almost like you would get a histamine response or that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So it definitely can happen. Um, and I think that that's a legitimate point to make because a lot of people just simply don't consider this possibility or a lot of people are afraid because they think that, you know, insect frass is going to make them, um, non-compliant when they do like a microbial test or something like that. Sure. Biocontrol agents don't vector any, uh, human pathogens. In fact, that's a really important aspect of sort of qualifying a biocontrol agent in the first place. Of course, cannabis is very different than fruits and vegetables and that kind of thing uh, that you can easily wash off, but you can't do with cannabis. Um, and then on top of all of that, um, I always thought it was kind of an unfair comparison because if you get pests in your cannabis that are ostensibly feeding and defecating on your plant as well, nobody ever says, well, I got spider mites, so I should just cut everything down and start again, right? Oh, because yeah. of the frat or because yeah. of the you know the fecal matter. Right. But when people suggest biocontrol agents, they're like, <laughs> oh, what about the microbial parts? And I'm like, okay, that's, that's a well, good what point. about the, yeah. Well, and I've brought that up too. The fact that you know, um, and also too, if and here's a, a, an even uh, 
different side to that is that we're outdoor growers for the most part. We do do some indoor uh, for certain reasons, but but majority is outdoor. And being that the plants are outdoors, they're going to no matter what you do, they're going to be subject to bugs and and fecal material and just all the stuff that comes from being outdoors. Um. So you yeah. just can't really get away from it. Now, indoors, I understand that's different. You've got sealed environments that you're trying to keep completely controlled. I get that. Um, and I think that's probably where the worst skepticism comes from is indoor growers saying, oh, God, all those bug parts and bug poop and all that stuff on your plants. <laughs> so, you know, there you it's, go. It's true, though, right? And It like, is. In addition to that, there's um, natural fibers unnatural fibers, spores, sure. particles, various right. particles. Yeah. California is burning down smoke particles, sure. plastic, Ash, um, yeah. yeah, all of these things are in the environment. You're breathing them. I'm breathing them. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in fact, indoor air quality is one of those things that, I mean, at least the indoor, indoor air quality specialists like to say, uh, which I believe, are you know that's a huge part of your health because you spend so much time in an area in a shelter um you want to make sure that it's all kind of nice and you want to make sure that you're not breathing in like you know odorless gases that are harmful or um you know like just various particulate matter particulates matter that you're dealing with and so like all of those things exist outdoor as well and and you're probably getting exposed to that with your cannabis as well. Also, when you pyrolyze cannabis, you're inhaling smoke and how much of that is actually deleterious to your lungs. Like that's also a contentious debate too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you simplify it right down, I mean, if you're just talking about bug parts and poop and stuff, you're basically, if it's still in the flower, I mean, it's not really causing any harm to the person other than whatever carcinogens come from combusting whatever's in there mm-hmm. you know i don't think there's anything else you're going to catch from that stuff right like people when people say oh you're just smoking bug parts well yeah i am but you know can i not yeah that, well that but i mean you're, you're not promoting viruses to yourself or anything like that you're just promoting whatever carcinogens are coming about from that stuff most and, and just on that point most a lot of biocontrols like your predatory mites and things they want to avoid the very trichomist uh, you know, uh, the heads of the cannabis plant, the flower mm-hmm. material, because those things are not great to walk on no. um, or are directly poisonous. And so they will avoid that a lot of the time that they can. Well, I've noticed, uh, yeah, I've noticed that most uh, bugs do. And um, ladybugs avoid it. The one thing I found very disgusting is that I noticed that aphids, when they start shedding their skeleton, don't they shed like the hemp aphid? It'll shed. It's yeah, they have an exuvium, which is the exoskeleton that's shed. And when they do that, that stuff will get stuck all over your buds. Aphids, especially because they'll produce that honeydew and then the exuvium will get stuck and adhere to the, that's one way you can like find them, which is kind of nice, but you're right. Definitely. This just disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) All of it. And then ants like to harvest that sweet stuff that they exude. Oh, just gross. Squish them. Um, which for, as if people don't know, that's one thing. If you see ants on your plants, uh, that I would start looking for aphids too and wondering why those 
those ants are on your plants and get that under control because a lot of times those ants will harvest those bad boys so you don't want them in your pants or on your plants no no pants no plants um with that said though what uh just and I had to ask this with the aphids. What you know, these things are out of control. Uh, what do you think is the best method or methods to deal with these guys? I mean, you have any advice at all for hemp aphids? Yeah, I do. Um, the main thing that you can do, the best prophylactic that you have, is to scout your crops. Yeah. Is to constantly be aware of what's in and uh, in on and around your crop because. Hitting, getting them early is the major thing that's, in my opinion, going to lead to the best success. If you don't crop scout at all, then you're really just unaware of anything that's mm-hmm. going on. And there's no way for you to react rapidly, which is the second thing you should do. So the first thing is to be aware. And the second thing is to um, rapidly react. And hopefully you already have an IPM strategy that's geared towards affecting them. Hopefully, mm-hmm. you already have supplies, right. pesticides, some sort of chemical agent right. or a biological agent that's on tap that you can uh, deploy quickly. If mm-hmm. you have to wait for or if to order it and then receive it, maybe it'll take a week or two or whatever. Especially right now when supplies are, um, you know, supply lines are kind of hurt mm-hmm. for various reasons. That can be very difficult. Or maybe you live in a place where it's very hard for you to get your own mail. Um, you know what I mean? So. Those are the two big things is to be aware of it when it immediately happens and then attack it immediately. And then the third question is, well, then what do you do to attack it immediately? Well, I like to use, um, for biocontrols anyways, I like to use lacewing larvae a lot. Um, there are aphidious, uh, there are various like parasitoid wasps that go after aphids and cannabis aphids in particular. Um, I have a, again, like I mentioned, I have a pest primer on the cannabis aphids. And I do go over some of the biocontrol agents that work against it. I like Bouveria bastiana a lot too, which is an entomopathogenic fungus. And it feeds on tons of different soft-bodied insects, and aphids are one of them. And so that can be very useful um, if you can get direct application onto them. Um, there are some suffocants and horticultural oils that work well against them as well. Um, I'm a big fan of using like various products that have like... Um, like sort of botanical oils and that kind of a thing, your soybean oils, your peppermint oils, that sort of thing. But like we said earlier, you know, I'd be careful because you don't necessarily know what goes into those compounds, especially if they're like FIFRA, 25B pesticides that don't need to be regulated. Like on the one hand, it's great because you can use them in a lot of context. In another way, it's not so great because they're unregulated and you don't know what's in them. And so that's kind of the dichotomy that you have to make a confession about. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, there are other controls that are not bio or chemical. You can use, uh, you can heavily prune the plants. I think you mentioned that earlier. And mm-hmm. that's also very helpful because you have less surface area for the plant, for the pest to exist on. It's and, also and- easier to get coverage that way. And you can also heavily prune the plant or drop a whole plant. Like if you have just one plant with cannabis aphid or something, I mean, it might be the financially and logistically more intelligent move to just destroy that plant. Sure. Just put that plant, put that in a bag, seal that bag, and get rid of it. But, you know, your crop scouting will inform you about that mostly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just, that can be a tough decision, I imagine, depending on the, the um, 
depending on how the the scale of the operation or you know whatever because i know even for myself if i got say you know 12 plants going and i lose one that's a heartbreak <laughs> well, i was just thinking of the cucumeras too <laughs> yeah it, well yeah and um that's the other thing too that uh, was kind of uh in the top of my mind is cloud wave right yeah we there's a, a farm that we have up north towards portland that relies totally on biocontrols mm-hmm. um so and they use you know everything from ladybugs to they're, they're really hot on this cucumeras is that how you say that cucumeras Cucumeras. You can say it however you want, man. The line <laughs> died a right. long time ago. Okay, well, I say if you want to ask, but since you asked, I say cucumeras. Cucumeras. I hear a lot of people say cucumeras, and I think that's even more musical. So that's fine. <laughs> it makes me want to sing the song. Actually, as soon as I heard it, like, what is that? Uh, I say cucumeras sits in an old pine tree. What is that original song? Chickaberry or whatever the bird. Okay. I don't remember. It was a, it was a song from school that I used to sing. <laughs> Apparently, well, now I wish I could have heard that. Cuckaberry. <laughs> Cuckaberry. Yeah, I don't. Huckleberry. Maybe I don't remember. It's I hear Huckleberry. That's... Maybe. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I always sing Cuckaberry sits in an old pine tree. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, I'll tell you. So one one of the things like I told you is is thrips around here are freaking. They're they're like pretty. They're like the staple. They're like the milk and bread of the insect world in our area and. Um, cucumeris we used last year because this farm I was talking about they they rely on that totally and it's been successful they had the first year was real tough because the farm itself was uh, basically was a out of business nursery not mm-hmm. out of business just the nursery didn't use that whole land anymore she basically yeah she had she had given it to them to yeah. use for their cropping so it already had its own bug problems because of the fact that they had flowers and plants and stuff like that as a nursery landscaping and so they already had their bug problems so they spent the first couple of years you know hating it because mm-hmm. they had they did have to get it under control with some chemical agents initially like with the greenhouses but then the next year they completely relied on these biocontrols and cucumer cucumer what do you say Q there we go they used that and had very good success and actually i they gave me some sachets is that how you say that sachets sachets sachet okay gave me some of those and i hung them for my plants and they worked wonderful they got rid of the thrips fairly quickly no thrips after that and it lasted pretty much all season Mm -hmm. um and what I wanted to ask you about directly is they had said that you can actually successfully inoculate like greenhouses and stuff with those. Um, Cucumerous. Cucumerous. <laughs> uh, and then actually have them potentially survive um, a year or two and actually stick around and and not have to treat. And apparently that's what's happened. They've been able to do that and been successful. Mm-hmm. Um and the song is Kookaburra sits in an old gum tree. Oh, okay. It's from it's from oh, elementary I like school. That. Yeah, it's, it's it's from uh, elementary school. <laughs> so, is that true? Can you inoculate with things like that? Possibly in smaller areas like greenhouses and tents, even, and maybe you know have the population survive for a while. Absolutely, it's a statistics game. Mostly, mm-hmm. what you're trying what you're trying to do is. Um, build up a prophylactic population so that when 
a swarm comes in, like maybe a bunch of, I don't know, plants are dying because they're all burning down and there's no other, you know, plants for them to eat. Or maybe what happens more often every year or so um, is that there's some weedy ruderal plants that are around, like for thrips or whatever, pesticides, and then they kind of die out because it's the season for them to do that. It gets too hot or whatever. And then those, those insects that would normally have nothing to eat and would starve or lay their eggs for overwintering um, don't. And they fly around trying to look for hosts, and they do, and they find it in your cannabis crop or whatever plants that you're growing. And so you want, whether it's, a, whether it's a small innocuous ingress of a few, of a few uh, adults or if it's a larger swarm brought on upon by environmental factors outside of your control, you want to have a large population of the biocontrols already there so that when the um, incidental colony starts, you've already got a ton of biocontrols like the Cucumeris or the Swirsky is another one, uh, type 3 predatory mite that goes after thrips and russet mites and broad mites and whitefly and that sort of thing. But they only go after various uh, life stages, important to note. So oh, okay. like, they typically won't go after the adults. Uh, because they're really large and they can fly and, you know, it's kind of hard for them to wrestle them. Hmm. Um, if, yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> well, so go- that's, that's the way it works, basically. You just want to make sure you get enough of a population for a longer, a long period of time. And a lot of times these sachets are slow release and they last a few weeks depending on your environmental constraints. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, they've been successful just relying on the total biocontrols now. I don't know of any other farm that I know of anyway. I that, haven't that can never do heard that. about it. I've, I've heard them being able to, you know, use that as part of the IPM is to have the biologicals, but, um, but they rely on it totally. And, but they do other stuff. They have had success with caterpillars. Like I talked about how bad we have caterpillars in Oregon. Well, they've had success using a patch of sunflowers in the center of their uh, acreage on each plot, they'll have um, a patch of sunflowers, and it seems they they claim that the caterpillars tend to go there first, mm-hmm. and they will just either pick them off or let the sunflowers take the the, the full the full on attack and look bad and die and all that as they're destroying them. But it seems to work there too. Yeah, something I've never tried in my personal area, but I imagine would work. It just seems bad sacrificing a beautiful sunflower i know (laughs) (laughs) have you heard anything about little things like that using other flowers and stuff uh, like sunflowers for caterpillars and stuff like that yeah like a trap crop kind Mm -hmm. of or like or or at the very least like a sentinel crop or a sentinel plant that you might plant to say well this thing will probably this thing will get a lot of different kinds of pests so you plant it at like your perimeter. I don't know if I would do it in the center of my crop because I feel like that would be actually like the worst place to put it. I see. Mm-hmm. They may have changed but, that. I haven't been up there in a couple of years. <laughs> right. That's, it's totally possible. And, you know, I'm not trying to tarnish oh, the reputation of anyone. No, no, but no. yeah, I, I do feel like uh, trap crops, I mean, it might, be, might make sense even depending on your context to do like various places. Um, inside the crop, you know, potentially perimeter or various places inside, especially if you know a place where you tend to, if you're doing your record, if you're recording your scouting and you have a, a really um, sort of comprehensive way to standardize your scouting and then also bring that up in like a graphical way, like there's apps and 
various software programs for people in that in who are trying to do this and it's very very helpful you might find that like if you like over two or three years you might see like hmm we tend to get moth larvae uh, of these particular species like around about like week 29 or week 30 or week 15 or whatever and we tend to deal with them all the way up until like week 40 or whatever well when you know that you can maybe like plant these and, and you might also know where topographically they are. Oh, there, we mostly see them in the beginning in the perimeter. Maybe we should investigate about the plants near the perimeter and, mm-hmm. and figure this out or that kind of a thing. Um, but trap crops are a big thing. I worked with the Cannabis Horticultural Association president, Russell Pace, who's up in Humboldt, actually. Uh, we worked on a project where we were trying to help people get, and we still are trying to help people get, um, banker pepper plants to utilize for predatory mites. Um, the predatory mites that we often use that are type 3 omnivores, like the Swirsky and Cucumerus, mm-hmm. they feed on pollen as well. And that's a really great boon because they can uh, feed on the pepper plants. We were using explosive ember, or exploding ember? I always get the name wrong, but uh, exploding ember pepper plants, I think. Mm-hmm. And they're ornamental. And the advantage to these ornamental pepper plants for this particular uh, sort of situation is because as ornamental pepper plants, they're actually not meant to be productive in their fruit, although you can have them fruit and you can eat their fruit and there's nothing wrong with that. The main attraction is that they make a lot of flowers mm. and they make a ton, they make more flowers and so and the flowers last longer because you're really buying the plant for the flower and not the fruit, which is great because that means you have a ton more pollen, right? Mm. And so what you can do, and there's re- they have a video on my YouTube channel that goes over it. It was the primary, the research from the video was the primary impetus for this whole program. So I encourage people to look into it. But the banker pepper plants were great because the exploding ember could have like 12, they found it in the laboratory setting again, that's important context, but 1,200 different individual Swirsky, or Cucumerans? Cucumerans. Mm-hmm. Um, on these uh, on these pepper plants. Wow, that's uh, nice. Yeah, they tried three, uh, two other cultivars. Uh, one of them, I think, was called Red Rocket, and um, maybe the other one was called like Masquerade, I think. Um, but there was the Exploding Ember that was the one with the twelve hundred. So we went with that one, and it's kind of a slow grower, especially if you're trying to source the seeds and grow them. But, but uh, Russell was incredibly good at. Uh, propagating these plants and um, he found that the mites would stay in the plants for a long period of time and of course another thing that we came across was that as they are pepper plants they are susceptible to certain pests right they do get pests like other many other plants do and you know you just have to watch out when you make banker plants you want to evaluate those banker plants as they grow what are they getting Maybe you get an aphid that that can feed on the pepper plant but really doesn't care about your cannabis. If that happens, then don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. The aphid can mm-hmm. also be really great because um, you could get some um, aphidious metricarii or some other uh, aphid parasitoid wasp that might be natural to your location or a commercial application somebody else made or whatever, and they might go after those aphids, parasitize them, and then maybe go after the aphid uh, after establishing in that area that would actually go after your cannabis, like your cannabis aphid and rice root aphid and that kind of a thing. So um, there's a lot of ways you can use uh, banker plants like that or trap plants or, cro- or sentinel plants 
that are really useful in that capacity. Nice, nice, nice. All right, brother. We have come to the end. I've got about nine minutes left for you. So why don't you go ahead and tell us how the listeners can get a hold of you, plug your, where we can find you. Absolutely. So I have two main places where I put out my content. The first one and the one that I use the most effort with is the YouTube channel Zenthanol. Um, it's my science communication uh, video series, or uh, rather I should say account, where I talk about all kinds of aspects of uh, integrated pest management, talk about plant physiology, insect physiology. I have two major videos that I worked on about four months ago called the Global Integrated Pest Management Review 2019. I guess at this point, it's more than four months ago. It's been so long. But uh, I spent a lot of time on these, and they go after sort of the evolutionary history of cannabis. They also talk about the ecology of cannabis and the evolution of it and the origin of it and the various pests and pathogens and microbes and viruses that interact with cannabis and other plants so that you can kind of get this really comprehensive and dense understanding of sort of the cannabis ecology as we know up to 2019. I also have an Instagram account, which we talked about right here called Think Angel. And it is also where I put a lot of the same kind of content, also smaller research reports and interactions with uh, my presentations. And I also put up my presentations on YouTube as well. And yeah, those are the two main places. You can also find me on Twitter at Think Angel as well. With some more personal musings, I might talk about video games or <laughs> or music that I like. I also make music on my SoundCloud, which is also Think Angel. So if you want to check out some music that I produce, which is not something you would bump at the club, but kind of experimental, sort of like ambient music, that's kind of what I like to produce. You can check that out as well. Well, that is awesome. I'm going to do that, man. You you have to let me play some of your stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, if you watch my videos. Some of them have that music. So. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, I want to check out the YouTube. I encourage everybody else that's listening to to check out YouTube because it sounds like you have a shit ton of information on there. Well, I really appreciate it, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad we could too. I do appreciate it. Uh, and this is actually special for us too. It, you know, she didn't say much, but uh, <laughs> but um, it's not very often that she gets to attend the actual interview. She does the intros with me, but... Right. Not the interview. So this is good that we got her on here too as well. All right, brother. We sure appreciate it, man. I really appreciate it too. I'm Higher Peaks and you've just listened to The Dirt Show. If you like this episode, please like, share, comment, and go to organrooted.com where you can subscribe to us on your favorite platform like iTunes, Pandora, or Spotify. Also check us out on our YouTube for videos and IG, Facebook, and Twitter for all our updates. Thank you for listening.